Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Here we are. The Anarchist World This Week, the day before Eureka Day. So we're going to be self-indulgent today. I don't care what's happening in the real world. Today it's all about Eureka because we're very keen to see all our listeners from all over Australia walk, fly, drive, sail to the reclaim the radical spirit of the Eureka Rebellion celebrations in Ballarat on Thursday, the 3rd of December. But on a more, so if you want to know what Anarchy is all about, Anarchy Society is a voluntary non-hierarchical society based on the creation of political and social struggles, based on equal decision-making power, that's direct democracy. The people involved in the decision make that decision and appoint or elect delegates to coordinate those decisions at a regional, at a local, regional or national level. It's a society where wealth is held in common. As I said today... It's a Eureka Day because I think it's important that we remember our history. Because in order to understand the present, we need to reclaim the past. And in order to change the future, we need to understand the present and reclaim the past. And for far too long in this country, forces have been the same forces that have tried to deny the uh, brutal colonisation process which led to the dispossession of peoples who had lived on this planet, uh, lived on this continent for over 40,000 years, that it's time that we reclaimed our history because nobody else is going to reclaim that history. If we don't reclaim that history, what we will find is that uh, we will have no ability to change the future and Eureka the 3rd of December is a pivotal day in Australian radical reformist and working class history the 161st anniversary of the Eureka revolt provides an opportunity to reassess the significance of what occurred in Ballarat on Sunday the 3rd of December 1854 It's both ironic and depressing that in 2015 the events that have helped to shape the consciousness of both a people and a nation are still dismissed by many as a revolt 
about mining licences. Now, we have been running the... The Annex Institute has been hosting the Reclaim the Radical Spirit of the Eureka Rebellion celebration since 2002. This is our 14th year. And the reason we organised these celebrations, because when we went up in 2000 and 2001 to join the celebrations, there were none. Nil. Eureka had almost been forgotten. Ballarat, a city which uh, makes its fortune from the uh, Eureka story, pays lip service to the revolt. And more importantly, there were forces in Australian society which attempted to dismiss that revolt, that rebellion, that revolution, as little more than a riot about mining licences. We need to reclaim our forgotten, discarded radical history, especially as far as the Eureka Rebellion is concerned, because the central themes of the Eureka Rebellion, direct action, direct democracy, solidarity and internationalism, are themes that are as important today in the 21st century as they were in 1854. These themes are echoed in the Eureka Oath. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. Now, this is an extraordinary oath. The, the, the oath was taken by about 500 poorly armed miners at Bakery Hill in Ballarat late Wednesday afternoon on the 29th of November, 1854. At the foot of the very same flagstaff that saw the Southern Cross first raised that morning at a monster meeting of over 12,000 miners and their supporters. The Eureka Oath, we swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties, is a powerful oath. It's we, we, not Anglo-Saxons, not the Irish, not you know, the Califumpians, but we, each and every one of us, we. We swear by the Southern Cross. Now, many people make the mistaken, uh, a mistake in thinking of the Southern Cross as some type of religious analogy. Well, the Southern Cross is a purely Southern Hemisphere constellation of stars. You can only see the Southern Cross in the Southern Hemisphere. And you need to remember that most of the refugees and migrants, that's right, refugees and migrants that had poured in Victoria in 1853-1854 when they heard about the gold that had been found, most of these refugees and migrants had come from the Northern Hemisphere. And none of them had seen the Southern Cross. And you've got to remember there's large tent cities, tent towns across Victoria. And the first thing you see when you leave that tent is the Southern Cross to remind you you are on the other side of the world. So we swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other. Solidarity. To stand truly by each other. The refugees, the political refugees and migrants that have swarmed into Victoria in 1854, many of these refugees and migrants were 
refugees from the eighteen from the eighteen forty eight revolutionary wave that swept across Europe. A revolutionary wave that was lost and many people had to leave, flee their homes in order to maintain their lives. And many of these people made their way to the Ballarat Goldfield to stand truly by each other and fight. That's right, and to fight. And it's interesting that even the Eureka Oath is tampered with. And in many historical accounts, you will see the word and fight removed from the Eureka Oath because this was a... This was about direct action. This was about people who were willing to def- fight to defend and extend the inalienable rights and liberties they believed they were born with, that no monarchy, no government, no business could take away from them. To defend our rights and liberties. So this is a powerful oath, a powerful oath. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. This year, as in last year, and the year before, and the year before, and many years to come, we will continue to host the Reclaim the Radical Spirit of the Rika Rebellion celebrations in Ballarat, which I'll speak about later on in the program. But I'd like to look at those four central pillars of the Eureka Rebellion. Direct democracy, direct action, internationalism and solidarity. It's only natural that when people are denied participation in the decision-making process of the societies they live in, that they develop their own processes. The miners at Ballarat confronted by a government that taxed them but denied them the right to participate in the decision-making processes, soon developed their own organisations. The influx of humanity, migrants, refugees, that tried to eke out their fortunes from the mining shafts at Ballarat came from around the world. Many had escaped difficult political circumstances Most had flocked to Ballarat to make their fortunes. Faced with a ruthless government and a corrupt bureaucracy, they soon formed their own organisations. Men and women from all corners of the globe faced a common enemy. Old hatreds based on politics, race and religion were put aside in the struggle against a more immediate and dangerous foe. Men and women who had participated in the 1848 European Revolutionary Movement, Irish nationalists, chartists and the apolitical coalesced into a new organisation that represented the interests of both miners and small businesses in Ballarat, the Ballarat Reform League. The Ballarat Reform League was was formed on that important historic day in Australia, the 11th of November. It was formed at a monster meeting on the 11th of November, 1854, at Bakery Hill, where over 12,000 miners flocked to the monster meeting to give their assent to the formation of the Ballarat Reform League, an organisation which represented 
their interests. The Ballarat Reform League was was born as a result of ordinary people taking matters into their own hands and directly making decisions about what was important to them. They did this through direct democratic principles, adopting principles and objectives that recognise the people. That's right, the people are the only legitimate source of political power. The meeting at Bakery Hill on the 11th of November 1854 adopted a number of principles and objectives that clearly challenged the powers of the state. That it is the able right of every citizen to have a voice in making the laws he is called on to obey. That taxation without representation is tyranny. That being, as the people have been hereto unrepresentative in the Legislative Council, the Colony of Victoria, they have been tyrannised over and it becomes their duty, as well as interest, to resist and, if necessary, to remove the irresponsible power which so tyrannises over them. That this colony has hitherto been governed by paid officials upon the false assumption that law is greater than justice, because forsooth it was made by them and their friends and admirably suits their selfish ends and narrow-minded views. It is the object of the League to replace place power in the hands of responsible representatives of the people to frame wholesome laws and carry on an honest government. That it is not the wish of the League to effect an immediate separation of this colony from the parent country, if equal laws and equal rights are dealt out to the whole free community, but that if Queen Victoria continues to act upon indirectly dictating obnoxious laws for the colony under the assumed authority of the royal prerogative, the Reform League will attempt and endeavour to supersede such royal prerogative as the papal are the only legitimate source of all political power. But that's the prelude, the preamble to the Ballarat Reforms League's constitution. Between the formation of the Ballarat Reform League at Baker Hill on the 11th of November 1854 and the destruction of the Sea of Blood, the destruction of the movement in a Sea of Blood on the 3rd of December 1854, the mass meeting played a pivotal and central role in the Eureka movement. All power evolved from the mass meetings. The legitimacy of the movement's leaders and its aims and objectives were related to the direct participation of diggers, shopkeepers and inhabitants in mass meetings. Delegates with limited mandates were appointed or elected to carry out the wishes of those present at the mass meeting. Monster meetings were a feature of life in Ballarat. On the 1st of November 1854, over 15,000 inhabitants, and there are only 25,000 people in Ballarat at that particular point in time, gathered at Bakery Hill to protest the arrest of Andrew McIntyre, Thomas Fletcher and Henry Yorkey for complicity in the burning of Bentley's Hotel. It was both natural and appropriate. The Ballarat Reform League was created through structures the miners were familiar with. Mass meetings allowed the people affected by a decision 
to make that decision. The next monster meeting occurred on Wednesday the 29th of November under the newly hoisted Southern Cross flag over 12,000 people gathered to listen to reports from the delegates they had appointed to raise their grievances with Governor Hotham in Melbourne. Unhappy with their delegates' lack of success with the Governor and their violent encounter the previous day with the 12th Regiment, participants in the mass meeting were ready to escalate their struggle. The Ballarat Reform League's division between a moral and a physical force component gave people a stark choice. The diggers, keen to resist the increasing military presence on the goldfields, chose the physical path. Humphrey, they had elected on the 11th of November, had lost what moral authority he had. The events that occurred on the Ballarat gravel pits the following day when the authorities continued their licence hunt with the aid of the military forces that had been sent to Ballarat was the last straw. The diggers who had camped at the Eureka diggings formed armed military divisions to protect and defend arrested diggers and fight to defend the inalienable rights and liberties they believed they were born with. Ironically, Few participants in the Eureka Rebellion realised what they had created was an embryonic society based on direct democratic principles. Their short and long-term political aims were fashioned around the need to participate in a parliamentary process they had been denied access to, a process that gave credence to the idea that the democratic process is limited to people casting a ballot every few years to elect representatives to make decisions on their behalf. A few entertained a more radical vision of democracy. Understanding the significance of what's happening, Henry Seacombe, the the editor of the Ballarat Times, the only man who was uh, jailed for uh, sedition, wrote when the Ballarat Reform League was formed that the League was not more or less than the germ of Australian independence, that it had the potential to become an Australian Congress. Direct action. The second pillar of the Eureka Rebellion. Direct action, in its simplest terms, means that people believe they are able to manage their affairs better than those that are doing it for them. Many of the Rika miners had lost faith in both the bureaucracy and the colonial authorities. Faced with daily attacks from a bureaucracy that was actively pursuing state policies that threatened both the miners' interest and their safety, the scene was set for a struggle that challenged the colonial authorities' power to use force to impose the state's will on the Ballarat diggings. And it's quite interesting to remember that when gold was first found in Victoria, the Victorian Legislative Council and the Governor had a choice. And they made the wrong choice. They had a choice. They could tax those that had found gold or they could issue licences to people who wanted to look for gold. And the squatters who dominated the Legislative Council 
the very people who are responsible for the destruction of a people that have lived on this part of the, the earth for over 40,000 continuous years chose to levy a fee, a monthly fee of five pounds on each person who was prospecting for gold. That's what they chose to do. And they chose to do that for one very good reason, because they were frightened that the underpaid labourers which ran their sheep farms would run away to the gold fields and they believed that if there was a large impost, personal impost, on people digging for gold, that they would be able to retain their cheap labour and continue to make a fortune from their monopolisation of the ownership of land which they had stolen less than 20 years previously through some of the most horrendous mechanisms of dispossession of people who had lived on this land for over 40,000 years. So they set the scene for the Eureka Rebellion because if a tax had been levied on the amount of gold that was found, not on each individual miner, I am quite confident what occurred in Ballarat on the 3rd of December 1854 would never have happened. So in many ways you can blame it on the squatters who for too long had had it their own way, who wished to monopolise, lock up the lands in their hands so they could continue to extract the maximum profit for the least amount of effort. The ability of the Ballarat miners to challenge the state was based on the need of citizens of a frontier society who are actively pursuing a policy of dispossessing the local indigenous population through the use of force to have access to firearms. In 1854, Victoria and the state's traditional monopoly on the use of force was undermined by the need of people living in a frontier society who have ready access to firearms. The diggers' ability to form their own organisations the need for them to sort out the differences outside of a corrupt judicial system and their ability to formulate demands among themselves through direct democratic processes created a climate where the creation of a dual power this situation became a distinct possibility. The only thing that stood between the Eureka miners controlling their own affairs was the military might of the British colonial authorities. Faced with the possibility of a rebellion spreading to other Victorian goldfields and possibly even Melbourne itself, Governor Hotham, a naval disciplinarian, was appointed governor to quickly lance the social carbuncle growing on the goldfields. A direct confrontation between the much-hated and poorly-armed Joes who were using 1840 constabulary carbines and triangular socket bayonets would have resulted in a quick rout of the foot and mounted police. A confrontation with the British Army was another matter. As the challenge to the colonial authorities' power increased, Governor Hotham began to flood the area with well-armed and disciplined British troops. Both the 40th and 12th Regiment were armed with the more modern 1842 percussion mu musket, which could fire two rounds a minute. The 40th Regiment mounted military force carried light calorie 
Calvary sources, Calvary swords, 1844 carbines and single-shot percussion pistols. On the 29th of November, around 500 poorly armed miners gathered at Bakery Hill. They marched to Eureka and set up the stockade. They spent the next few days procuring arms, electing their own officers and setting up a hastily erected enclosure. Saturday the 2nd of December was spent drilling and procuring horses and arms. About 1,500 armed men were in the enclosure that evening. By the time the 12th and 40th Regiment and Foot and Mounted Police attacked the stockade the next morning, the number of miners in the stockade had dwindled to around 120. Faced with a determined onslaught by well-armed troops, the miners soon gave way to the overwhelming firepower directed at them. Major General Sir Robert Nicoll arrived at Ballarat two days after the battle with the rest of the 12th and 40th regiments as well as a naval contingent that had two six-pounder field pieces and two 12-pounder howitzers. The comprehensive military victory on the Ballarat goldfields did not spell the defeat or end of direct action. Paradoxically, the concentration of so much military power in Ballarat made Hotham's administration in Melbourne extremely vulnerable. 37 Marines from the recently arrived HMS Phantom and the HMS Electra were posted to guard the Treasury buildings in Spring Street, Melbourne. 1,500 special constables were sworn in to maintain order in Melbourne. Protest meetings that attracted thousands of... The Ballarat faced with... The Ballarat Miners' decision, protest meetings that attracted thousands of people were held in Melbourne and on the goldfields in the days following the slaughter. The Ballarat Miners' decision to directly challenge state power by challenging the state's monopoly on the use of force had paid dividends. Faced with a restless population that was willing to directly confront the state, faced with the problem of not having the military muscle to assert its authority, and faced with a major loss of credibility, the colonial authorities were forced by the Barrett miners' use of direct action to find a political solution to a problem to which there was no military solution. Internationalism. The third pillar of the Eureka Rebellion. It's acknowledged by most commentators and historians the diggers who flocked to the goldfields came from all corners of the world. What is forgotten is although the miners were predominantly of European origin, many came from other parts of the British Empire and the rest of the world. Deeply held views about race and religion were watered down in the face of the common enemy. Irrespective of where they came from, their race or religion, all the miners felt the brunt of the colonial authorities' attempts to extract the maximum amount of cash from them. Their common experiences at the hands of the authorities created a culture where race and religion were not important issues. The only people excluded from the process were the remnants of the original indigenous population. Caboni was one of the few miners who in his pantomime, Gilburnia, written while he was awaiting trial in Melbourne for high treason in early 1855, promoted the idea that the original inhabitants were as much, if not more so, victims of the British colonial authorities than the miners were. The international nature of the Eureka movement 
is highlighted in the Eureka Oath. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. An extraordinary statement for 1854. In a period when God, King and Country were the dominant ideological themes of the, of the world, the oath began with the word we, everybody on the goal fields, irrespective of whether they where they came from, their race or nationality or religion, were welcomed into their movement. Some of the most prominent participants in the movement did not use English as their first language. Raffaele Caboni, the unofficial historian of the movement, who on the first anniversary of the Eureka Rebellion was giving away his book about the rebellion at the site of the rebellion, and Frederick Verne, the German who was a rival of Peter Laylor for the leadership of the movement, did not use English as their first language. Three of the 13 members of the Council of War for the Defence of the Miners, Edward Fonin, a Jew from Elbertfield, Prussia, Raphael Caboni from Iberno, Italy, and Frederick Verne from Germany, came from non-English-speaking parts of the world. John Manning, Timothy Hayes, Patrick Curtin and Peter Laylor were from Ireland. Thomas Kennedy was from Scotland, and James McGill, the second in command, was from the United States. Men from non-English-speaking backgrounds as well as non-British-English speakers also appeared among the list of those who were killed and wounded at Eureka and who were tried for high treason for their participation in the battle in 1854. Of the 13 tried for high treason, John Joseph was a black American born in New York. Raphael Caboni was an Italian from Urbino. Jacob Sorison was a Jew. Jan Venick hailed from Holland. James McPhee Campbell was a black man from Kingston, Jamaica. Michael Tui, Timothy Hayes, John Phelan came from Ireland. While Thomas Dignam, the only native born among the 13, was born in Sydney. Irish, Prussians as well as Canadian Lieutenant Ross made up the list of those killed while fighting at the Eureka Stockade. Two Italians feature among the names of those massacred after the battle whose names do not appear on any monuments. The international nature of the Eureka movement is one of its most important elements. The miners faced with a common enemy, the hated colonial authorities, joined together in a movement that included people from non-English parts of the world as well as different races and religions. The hatreds that would be expected to normally divide people were put aside, in the common struggle to destroy a system that made all their lives a misery. And it's quite ironic that in 2015 we see racist elements in Australian society wave the Eureka flag as a, a symbol of their racism. If only they knew, if only they knew the international nature of the Eureka Rebellion. If only they knew that two of the 13 people tried for high treason were blacks. If only they knew Jews made up, you know, a section of the Eureka Rebellion and the list goes on and on. So when you see some racist favor, fly Eureka flag, smile to yourself and uh, it's really amazing how little some people know about their own history. and It's not their fault. It's not their fault. For far too long, we have seen elements in this country try to denigrate the Eureka Rebellion. From the government banning the CFMEU flying Eureka flags on building sites, 
to racists waving the Eureka flag, thinking it's got something to do with uh, racism, to uh, other elements in society trying to downplay the significance of the rebellion. Because, see, the rebellion resonated through society for years. But let's talk about the fourth pillar first, solidarity. Solidarity is one of the central themes of the Eureka Rebellion. Individual miners could never have hoped to achieve what was achieved at Eureka. Solidarity between all the major players on the goldfields, irrespective of their race, nationality, religion, or whether they made their livelihoods from digging up the ground or providing goods and services to the miners, was an important ingredient in the mix that allowed them to resist the colonial authorities' plans to restrict and remove what few rights and liberties people living on the goldfields believe they had. The participants in the Eureka Rebellion understood the importance of solidarity. The central role solidarity played in the movement is both outlined in the Eureka Oath, we swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties, and in the actions the participants in the rebellion took to protect each other from the colonial authorities' actions. Digger license huts by the police were met with stones and the occasional gunshot. Every time diggers were arrested, taken away, fined and imprisoned, the anger on the goldfields increased. The local newspapers, especially Henry Seacombe's Ballarat Times, threw their support behind the diggers. The Ballarat Times printing presses were used to produce many of the flyers that were posted up around Ballarat, advertising the monster meetings that were held at Bakery Hill. The diggers were especially upset when 10 of their number were singled out and arrested for burning down Bentley's Hotel. Three were eventually charged and imprisoned for their role in the riot which led to the burning of the hotel. Governor Hotham, well aware that discontent was not just limited to Ballarat and that he faced a possible insurrection on the goldfields, did his best to ensure the better-armed Americans did not join the revolt. The Americans' favourable treatment before the courts before the revolt and the lack of charges laid against those Americans like James McGill the deputy commander of the revolt, reinforced people's opinions that a deal had been done between the American consul and Hotham, which resulted in only a few of the better-armed Americans becoming involved in the Eureka Rebellion. As justice piled on injustice, as inquiry after inquiry didn't come up with any real answers, as the licence hunts intensified and the military took an active part in the hunts, as the level of official corruption increased on the goldfields, the miners were forced to rely on themselves. Solidarity became more and more important. Faced with a network of government spies and government attempts to use the legal system and the military to put down the unrest on the goldfields, many of the people working on the claims and providing goods and services to those on the Ballarat diggings were forced to form their own organisations arm themselves and eventually use these arms to protect themselves against the state. The situation at Ballarat progressed to armed rebellion because those living in Ballarat were concerned about their neighbours' safety as well as their own. Their shared oppression and the inability or unwillingness of the colonial authorities to resolve their concerns the daily injustices meted out to individuals within their community by a hostile and indifferent administration 
provided the spark that convinced the miners the only way the colonial authorities would take notice of them and their grievances was by burying their differences and working together as a single united movement that believed an injury to one was an injury to all. So why do we reclaim the radical spirit of the Eureka Rebellion? Why is it so important that we reclaim that spirit? Why do we go to the trouble of every year of organising an event that begins at 4am and ends at 10pm on the 3rd of December 1854? For one very good reason. The Eureka Rebellion didn't end on the 3rd of December 1854. Within 12 months of the rebellion, the 13 men tried for high treason were all acquitted. The leaders of the revolt were in Parliament, Humphrey, Laylor, Caboni. All the demands of the miners were met. And why were they met? For one very simple reason, the Eureka Rebellion was not limited to Ballarat. Across the state, people wanted access to land. They wanted to break the stranglehold the squatters had on the purchasing of land. They wanted to participate in the decision-making processes. They wanted a justice system which you know, looked after their interests, not the interests of the squatocracy. And the 21st century squatters is the corporate sector. No difference. No difference. The situation is becoming more and more similar every day. In 1854, you had squatters who had illegally claimed this land, removed the original inhabitants with the most utmost brutality and force, destroying a culture and a people who had inhabited this land for over 40,000 years, who then, who then exploited their own people's labour to create wealth for them, and then, through their domination of the Legislative Council, attempted to keep that power. The similarities between 1854 and 2015 are quite eerie. Today we have a corporate sector, a modern-day squatocracy, that has usurped the power of Parliament. We have a corporate sector that does pays voluntary taxation. We have a corporate sector which has so much influence in Parliament that legislation continues to be pushed that promotes their interests. We have a corporate sector which is out of control, just like the squatters were out of control in 1854. And the situ- although there's 161 years difference between 1854 and 2015, the situation is eerily familiar. Although people can cast a ballot, their political representatives don't have the inclination or the power to put the public interest before corporate interests. They never seem to have that inclination or power to put public interest before corporate interests. So we celebrate the Eureka Rebellion. One, to keep its radical content fresh in the minds of people. It's important... We celebrate the Eureka Rebellion to honour our dead, whose graves still exist. 
to honour our dead. People who paid the ultimate price. Upholding principles that are as important today in the 21st century as they were in 1854. Direct action, direct democracy, solidarity, internationalism. We celebrate the Eureka Rebellion to remind people across the country of that debt we owe. Because, as I said before, the Eureka Rebellion didn't stop on the 3rd of December 1854. It continued to reverberate across the country. An alternative parliament was set up across the road from Parliament House at the Eastern Markets, the site of the Justice Building in Exhibition Street today that corner there where the Southern Cross Hotel used to be. And that alternative parliament was based on direct democratic principles and delegates used to attend that alternative parliament. We had people in the Legislative Assembly and the Legislative Council in Victoria who pushed through legislation which broke the back of the squatters' stranglehold on land. We had people who in 1872 under Governor Heels passed legislation which made free, secular, compulsory education, the right of every child, a right which has been, has been removed in 2015, where we see public money squandered on private education. We saw legislation come into place which protected ordinary people's interests, which ensured that everybody enjoyed the Commonwealth. And these are all legacies of the Eureka Rebellion, not just in Victoria, but across the country. Across the country. And that legacy continues today because the Eureka flag is not an official Australian flag. How could the authorities, you know, approve of the Eureka flag, a flag of rebellion, of resistance? And you know that in the 161-year history of the Eureka Rebellion, the Eureka flag has never, never, never been flown on the main flagpole of the Ballarat Town Hall. A city whose name is etched in the, on the, in the, minds, of, on the minds of Australians because of the Ballarat, because of the Eureka Rebellion, a city that profits from the Eureka Rebellion, a city that uses the symbols of the Eureka Rebellion, you know, to badge itself, refuses year in and year out to fly the Eureka flag on the main flagpole on the town hall, even on the 160th anniversary last year or the 150th anniversary in 2004. A city that denies the importance of that celebration, a city that does nothing Nothing to honour the dead and to mark the day. A city that runs the other way when they see the reclaim, the radical spirit of the Eureka Rebellion people take over their streets and raise the Eureka flag as the flag of resistance. That's what the issue is. So what, what's happening? What's happening on the 3rd of December? Well, hopefully you've been listening. It's a little bit late to turn up, but take the day off. If you're working, take the day off. Tell the boss 
you'll work on the Queen's birthday holiday, but you will not work on Eureka Day. That is your holy day. That is your day of remembrance. That is the day you honour the spirit of the Eureka Rebellion. That is the day when you take, when you remember. That is the day when you remember the past and you use that past to understand what's happening today and use that past to change the future. So, this year's celebrations. 4am to 10pm at Stations of Eureka. Thursday the 3rd of December, the 161st, 161st anniversary celebrations at the Eureka Stockade site, which is the corner of Stall and Eureka Streets, Ballarat. When you go to Eureka Park, you'll notice down in the gully is this the Museum of Australian Democracy at Eureka, a nice big building down the gully. Up on top of the hill, at the corner of Eureka and Stall Street, are the cannons, the Eureka cannons which were set up in 18. 18- 84 to mark the 30th anniversary of the Eureka Rebellion. Where the cannons are is the exact site of the Eureka Stockade. It is the site of the Eureka Battle. It is the site which the Eureka survivors pointed to as that site. And it makes sense that if you're going to have a stockade, you'd have it on a hill. You wouldn't have it in a gully. So join us at Eureka Park at 4 a.m., for a very simple ceremony which lasts two hours. And we have it at 4am because at that particular moment in time, both the Southern Cross and the Morning Star, the symbol of West Papua Independence, are up in the sky together. We have it at 4am because that was the time the soldiers and police came down from the uh, police encampment near where the Ballarat's... uh, art gallery is today and walked down in the cover of darkness to the Eureka Stockade site and we'll be there from 4am to 6am we'll form a simple circle there'll be flags and lanterns and banners and everybody at that ceremony will be asked why they're there who they are, why they're there what it means to them, why they have made that effort and this year is last year Community Radio 3CR, 855 on the AM dial, will be streaming live this two-hour ceremony from 4am to 6am. So if you can't make it to the Eureka site on the 3rd of December, don't despair. Set your alarm clock. Uh, You can get it on the computer, 3cr.org.au. It streams live on 3cr.org.au. So it doesn't matter where you listen to this program. If you want to listen to the Eureka Dawn Ceremony, Come and join us at daybreak, just before daybreak, at uh, around 5.30am, we will see the burning of the effigy. And the effigy this year is of a man who is in the news today, Mr Peter Dutton, the head of the Immigration Department, the head of Border Force, the head of an organisation which sends back the letters of pen children from the Preston primary school to uh, children in the detention centre at Broadmeadows in Melbourne sends back their letters because they don't want to have any international, any outside contact he's the head of a department which refused to use, refused to let nuns, Catholic nuns from taking out the children on excursions which they've done for years, so a, a fitting effigy to burn at 5.30am on the 3rd of December 6am 
We uh, walk about 25 metres to the Eureka Hall, an old-fashioned building from the 1930s. The Eureka Hall was created at Eureka Park as a centre where people could remember the Eureka Rebellion. We have a common breakfast between 6am and 9am. We don't cater. Bring your own food and drinks. More importantly, bring some extra food and drinks for other people who may have not have enough uh, for themselves. So bring along some food and drinks for breakfast. At 9am sharp, we march from Eureka Park to Bakery Hill to reaffirm the Eureka Oath and to present the Eureka Australia Day medals at Bakery Hill. And this year we'll be presenting seven, not six, Eureka Australia Day medals. And we've got people who range from Irene Bolger to Gillian Collins to Richard Tate, and the list goes on and on. And we'll give a full list of people next week. So come along. If you can't make it to the dawn ceremony, make it to Bakery Hill. And let's not forget, Bakery Hill, that little piece of land where the flagpole stands, where the Eureka flag flies all year in Ballarat, would not have existed if it wasn't for the much maligned Builders Labourers Federation of Victoria placing a green ban on the development on the hill because it was the council's intention to develop all over Bakery Hill to McDonaldise Bakery Hill and this little patch of land where we stand and reaffirm the Eureka Oath at the same spot where people reaffirmed the Eureka Oath on the 29th of November said the Eureka Oath on the 29th of November 1854 at that very same spot would not have existed if it was for Mammon. Then from there we walk to the, uh, the Ballarat Town Hall for the Eureka Stump Orations and then we walk to the old Ballarat Cemetery to pay our respects to all those who died in the Eureka Battle who are buried at the old Ballarat Cemetery. Please bring flowers. It's ironical that in 2015 you go to the soldiers' graves, flag, flowers. You go to the Eureka grave, nothing. It's up to us to fly the Eureka flag on their flagpole. It's up to us to cover the gravesite with flowers, to highlight to people that their sacrifice was not in vain. So join us. Then a light lunch outside the cemetery. Then we walk from the old Ballarat Cemetery, the Museum of Australian Democracy at Eureka, to view the Eureka flag. And between 2 and 3 p.m. we'll be at the museum, you know, discussing the flag, the significance, what it means. Afternoon tea at 3 p.m. And then 7 to 10 p.m., the Eureka Annual Dinner. And don't forget, change of venue, 121 Grant Street, Ballarat, the Grapes Hotel, 121 Grant Street, Ballarat. Uh, it's uh, free. If you want to eat, you pay. If you want to buy drinks, you buy drinks. But dinner is quite reasonable, $15 for a main course, $20 for a main course and dessert. Now, the guest speaker will be Brett Edginton, the Secretary of the Union's Ballarat and Western Region, and he will be talking about the role the 1854 Eureka Rebellion continues to play in the 21st century Australian 
trade union movement, and entertainment will be the by the West Papuan Black Orchids String Band. So if you can't make anything else, come up for the dinner. 7pm to 10pm, the Grapes Hotel, 121 Grant Street, Ballarat. 121 Grant Street, Ballarat. You don't have to ring anybody, just turn up. And if you're in Katoomba on Saturday the 5th of December, join us for the Pikeman's Dog event, which will be at the Old Katoomba Library, 5th of December, 7pm, 81 to 83 Katoomba Street in Katoomba. Yours truly is the guest speaker, and I'll be talking about the significance of the Eureka Rebellion and also the role the Pikeman's Dog has had in the public imagination in keeping the Eureka spirit alive. You've been listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This program has been streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Hopefully you're listening to the Dawn Ceremony on 3cr, 3cr.org.au. Uh, on uh, the morning, 4am on the 3rd of December. Hopefully we'll see you in Ballarat. If you haven't been able to make it this year, you could make it next year. Very simple. If you can't make it this year, we accept your humble apologies. Turn up next year for the 2016 Eureka Rebellion celebrations. As I said, we're going to be self-indulgent. We'll be speaking about Eureka. We spoke about Eureka. We'd like to see you there. If you can't make it, Organise some type of ceremony or celebration where you live. It doesn't matter where you live in this country. It's important to remember the day, remember the 3rd of December. Remember it's important to reclaim our radical history. Remember we need to understand the present. We need to need that radical history to understand the present. Thank you once again for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. Listen in next week. We'll have some much more boring analysis than we've had this week. So if you're in Katoomba, Saturday, 7pm, the Pikeman's Dog event. $25 includes supper. Reservations, 0432 528 634. If you're in Ballarat, 3rd of December, Thursday, the Grapes Hotel, 121 Grand Street, Ballarat. Mr. Brett Edgerton, Secretary of the... uh, Ballarat and Western Region uh, Trades Hall will be speaking about the significance of the Eureka Rebellion to the 21st century trade union movement. Thank you once again. Listen to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station next week. And if you don't listen, well, it doesn't really matter, does it? Because you won't know what you missed. All this fascinating, interesting stuff which you will not hear in the Murdoch media or the government guild at ABC. You'll only hear it on community radio via the community radio network. Thank you once again for listening to the Anarchist World This Week on your local community radio station via the community radio network. Listen in next week to the Anarchist World This Week. Evil minds that plot destruction construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World This Week Australia's Sacred Cow Slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashing
wash my hands. Oh, Lord, yeah. <laughs> 